everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. Welcome to episode 9 of History and Mystery, a place where we discover history and hauntings of a new location every two weeks. If you're new here, welcome to my show. If you're already part of the History and Mystery family, welcome back. I have missed you guys so much. If you follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you have already figured out by now, I'm sure, that I live in California, and there have been nothing but wildfire evacuation orders and what they call these power safety shutoffs going on for the past three weeks all over my state. The power safety shutoffs is exactly what it sounds like. The state's major electric company has been the cause of massive wildfires over the past few years that have destroyed thousands of homes and sadly killed many people. So their bright idea was instead of to fix the problem they created due to neglect was just cut the power to over a million people every time there's a massive wind event. Some of these power safety shutoffs have lasted three days while the last one we experienced lasted a total of five days and six for some. While my county has been on evacuation watch due to a big fire that was caused by the same electric company yet again before they pulled the electricity in time, causing the biggest evacuation area in the history of California due to an out-of-control wildfire, we also didn't have power for five days. But I would like to pause and say that my heart is with anyone who was affected in a bigger way due to this fire and the power safety shutoffs. I am so sorry to everyone who had to lose work hours and even their homes during this fire. I'm sending out good vibes to all of you and putting you in my thoughts. And a huge thank you to all the first responders and firefighters that came to help during this crazy time. A lot of firefighters came from out of state to help and you guys are awesome. You risked your lives to save lots of homes and others from this big firestorm and you all deserve our gratitude. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. I hope everybody had a fun, safe, and spooktacular Halloween. My Halloween was, well, kind of a dud. We got our electricity back literally barely the night before Halloween and I started a new job on Halloween and I was supposed to start on Monday, but because we had no power, it was on Halloween. Anyway, long story short, I got the lowest amount of trick-or-treaters I have ever gotten in a place where I normally have well over 400 trick-or-treaters on Halloween. So I had so much candy left over. People were just not in the mood in my neighborhood. 
all the most all the houses were dark nobody had time to put up their decorations and it was just really sad and I also think that a lot of people you know didn't have the money after all the craziness yeah don't you lose all your food in your freezers and stuff and then um, you know losing a couple days of work that's really rough on some families so I was really sad and uh, Halloween's my favorite time of year so it was uh, kind of a downer. Everyone's spirits were low. It was pretty sad, but hopefully uh, next Halloween will be different and we won't have to deal with this. But I hope all of you had a great Halloween. I did have time to decorate the porch and I posted pictures of that on my social media handles, so you guys should go check that out. But yeah, so it was kind of a letdown, but I hope that the rest of the holiday season will have nothing major happen. Sadly, because of all the stress and no way to get internet for research or do any recording, I did not end up doing a Halloween episode as I promised, and I'm really sad because I had that in mind for ever since I started this podcast, I was really excited for it. I also didn't do an every Sunday the whole month of October like I said I was going to due to multiple power safety shutoffs and fire dangers. So I'm really sorry you guys didn't get a cool and spooky episode for Halloween. I will, however, be doing a great historical episode today on Waverly Hills Sanatorium and all the hauntings reported there as well. Thank you all for the love and support I got on my social media handles and well wishes Uh, While I felt like I was letting you all down, I just have to remember that this was not my fault and everyone in California was dealing with this and sometimes life throws you a state of emergency curveball out of nowhere, but you know, you just have to keep rolling with the punches. Speaking of social media, all of you should just take a second to find me on Facebook and Twitter at History and Mystery. Go ahead and follow and like that page. I am also on Instagram at History underscore Mystery 13 and I have a website as well that you could take a peek at, get to know me a little better, and you can even listen to some of my episodes on there as well. I also have a link to my Patreon page on my website. How you can find my website is type in historyandmystery13.wixsite.com slash website in your browser. I am still on the free plan right now, but I would love to change that sometime in the future. A few people have reached out and said that they wish that I could get a little more uh, recognition. So you guys could help me out in two big ways of that. So one is to please consider becoming a Patreon for History and Mystery. If you really like the show, you could donate just a dollar or more a month and I would greatly appreciate it. You can find the links to my Patreon page down below and also on my website, or you can go to patreon.com and in the search bar, type in history and mystery. Right now I have two tiers. So for the dollar or more a month Patreons, they are going to be getting into the Thunderbird tier and you will get a fun e-newsletter from me with information about upcoming episodes and extra fun facts about places I will be discussing and the beginning of each month. And the second tier is called the Mothman tier. And that is for people who donate $3 or more a month. And this tier will include the e-newsletter that I just described, plus an extra e-newsletter about monsters that are still making it in the news today, and including some UFOs as well in that. I'm also going to find a way to work in some bonus episodes to start posting uh, for Patreon only as well. So the second way you can help me out on the show is just to leave a comment and rate my show if you like it on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help out new podcasters grow. And if you like this show, you should leave me some just some stars. And then if you really love the show, you should write me a quick little review at the bottom. 
Another way you can help the show grow is to share it with your friends. And I also have a YouTube account where you can listen to my show in a whole new way. Please leave a comment on the videos and hit that like button. Give them a big thumbs up and also make sure you subscribe. I got another review on YouTube from episode 8, History of Urban Legends, and it was from someone named Nina. And Nina said, love the show, heard the hook story as the one in the car door after they got away. Thanks. So thank you so much for listening, Nina, and also thank you so much for leaving me a comment. Thanks to everyone for listening to me catch up on the news and what's going on with me. So now let's get this show started with our Monster of the Week. This week's Monster of the Week is the Vampire. Not only are vampires super popular in today's movies, TV, and book world, but they have been around since ancient mythology. Even though the vampire has been one of the oldest and most talked about creatures of the world of mythology, no one knows where the origin came from. The vampire is described as an undead man or woman who has been bitten by another vampire after being almost, or completely in some versions, drained of blood. The person then becomes a vampire. The most traditional vampire lore says that vampires feast on the living by sucking out the victim's blood. They can put people into a trance, they have superhuman strength, and they cannot go in the sunlight. The vampire cannot be seen in mirrors, garlic can keep them away, and they sometimes turn into bats, and the only way to kill them is to drive a wooden stake right through their hearts. How did we get to that last one? Stories of the undead can be found all over the world, but the vampire is more specific. All of the research I did told me one thing. No one knows exactly how the vampire story got started. The one thing that some historians point to comes from old stories of a creature called a revenant. The Revenant is an old story that comes out of Eastern Europe. A Revenant was described as an undead creature that was forced to return to the land of the living because of the evil deeds they did in a past life, or if they had unfinished business left to attend to. They were said to feast on the blood of the living by targeting and then attacking at night. A revenant is said to look like a bloated corpse in the early stages of decay and have dark features. They were said to sleep in coffins under the ground during the day and only came out to prey on the villagers at night. An easy way to spot one sleeping six feet under was if a hole was dug above the ground or over the grave. Even though most vampire stories come from Eastern European folklore, similar creatures are mentioned all over the world. In Hebrew mythology, there's the story of a woman named Lilith and the Estries. Now, I'm probably saying that wrong. It looks like it's spelled estries. It's spelled E-S-T-R-I-E-S, but when Google Translate put it up, they said it was Aries, which totally confused me. But I'm going to call it estries, and if I'm saying it wrong, you guys can comment down below and please let me know. Anyway, Lilith is a demon who is known for drinking the blood of babies, young children, and pregnant women. 
The estries are known as female demons who suck the blood of humans to keep living. The blood being their only food source, so they are not picky, but they apparently love to play a game with luring vulnerable men with the promise of sexual temptation, only to attack them and then suck their blood. Greek mythology has its own version of a vampire with the story of Ambergino, which I'm probably saying that wrong too. <laughs> anyway, Ambergino was a mortal man who fell in love with the same woman as the sun god Apollo. When Apollo found out of Ambergino's big plans to marry the love of his life, Apollo cursed him and turned Ambergino into what sounds a lot like a vampire. And I have bad allergies because of the smoke, so I'm starting to sound like a frog, so please forgive me. By the 18th century, mass hysteria caused many people to be accused of witchcraft, werewolves, and even vampires. And then we have a man that was known as Vlad the Impaler. What a name, huh? Vlad the Impaler was also known as Vlad the Third Dracula. Though it is not believed to be the sole inspiration for Count Dracula, he might have started the idea of putting stakes through the hearts of the dead so that you make sure that the person is actually dead. Vlad was known to be a cruel and crazy ruler of Romania in the 1400s. Vlad got his name Vlad the Impaler because he was known for after a big conquer, he would go out in the battlefield, collect the dead enemies, and put them on big wooden stakes and prop them up to send a message to anyone who dare attack him. He was so cruel that some people even thought he might be a vampire himself. But while the last name from Vlad might have been borrowed for Count Dracula, the original storybook, the vampire element is more likely inspired by a woman. A woman named Countess Elizabeth Bathory. She was a Hungarian noblewoman who was convicted of torturing and killing 650 young girls between 1585 and 1609. The actual number could have been greatly over-exaggerated, but she did have over 300 witnesses of her crime, along with compelling evidence. When people came forward to accuse her of vampir vampirism, the king's guard stormed her castle, and they said that they discovered horribly mutilated bodies and imprisoned young girls in her dungeon. It is said that she bathed in only the blood of virgins to keep her young and youthful appearance. Some accounts even talk of her drinking the blood of her victims. She was convicted of these horrendous crimes, but because of her noble status, she was spared being executed. But she was imprisoned in a windowless room on December 1610 until her death four years later. I covered Elizabeth Bathory in my last episode for my urban legends because she's also believed to be the inspiration for Bloody Mary. So she holds the trophy for being the inspiration of two very scary creatures. Vampires were blamed for lots of strange deaths and misfortunes all over the world. And all over the world, bodies were dug up and impaled with a wooden stake. Until the 19th century. After the Industrial Revolution, science began to take place of folklore and facts started to win over fiction. Now the vampire was nothing more than a fictional character used for scary stories. The first book about a vampire was titled Vampire by English writer John Poldery. His book was widely popular at the time and it is described as one of the most influential vampire works in the early 19th century. In 1871, a book called Carmilla was released by author Joseph Schneiden Lee Fon. I butchered that and I'm so sorry. 
Anyway, this gothic novel was considered extremely controversial and scandalous at the time. It dealt with not only female vampires, but also a contemporary view on homosexuality. Then we had the most popular vampire of fictional modern age enter with the book called Dracula. This extremely popular gothic novel was published in 1897 by Barnum Stoker. Dracula is now considered one of the most famous vampire books of all time. Every vampire since then has been based off of this book. And of course, when it hit the silver screen in 1922 with the silent film titled Nosferatu, it horrified audiences and became a staple in horror genre. This was the first time that audiences would get a visual of what a vampire might have looked like. He looked kind of what I described as a revenant, looking like a bloated, long-fingered corpse with dark eyes and dead-looking skin. He also looked more like a rat, which was at the time described to refer to pestilence, which was plague. Rats brought plague. Hence, he looked a little more like a corpse with a rat face. That's why he looks so different from the Bela Lugosi that we know today. But once talking pictures start to hit the silver screen, nothing scared audiences more than Bela Lugosi's Dracula. In 1931 is when this movie came out. It is still a staple in the scary movies to watch during Halloween time to this day. Of course, we have had a more modern take on vampires recently with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Twilight, and Vampire Diaries, and of course, True Blood. While vampires sound like the work of fiction, people still claim that they are still a real thing. Not only do small group of people self-identify as vampires, and yes, they do drink blood, a small amount though, from an actual person who's consenting, which I think is very interesting, real vampire sightings like those from the old stories have been claimed as well. In 1837, Highgate Cemetery was a burial place for the elite and upper class, but now it is a neglected old cemetery that apparently has a vampire. In the late 1960s, sightings started of a tall figure with red eyes. This in turn launched an investigation when so many people came forward with claims of seeing this person. In 1971, a young girl was passing the cemetery when a tall, white-faced, dark figure grabbed her and threw her to the sidewalk. A car pulled up right at that moment and then the figure ran off with amazing speed and disappeared back into the cemetery. And sightings of this vampire are still said to happen to this day. While everyone loves a good vampire movie and a good vampire story, just keep in mind that some of it might just be fact and not fiction. Hey everyone, just a quick update. If I sound super sick in this little segment, it's because I am. Since I recorded my intro, I got really sick and I'm just pushing through because I really need to get this episode posted so you all don't think I disappeared on you. Uh, We'll get back to normal soon, I hope. Anyway, just wanted to let you guys know, yeah, voice is changing because I'm really sick And also, I realized just now that I will be posting this on Veterans Day weekend. So, I just wanted to say thank you to anyone who served in our military. Thank you guys so much. You guys are awesome. Make sure you thank a veteran this weekend. 
And uh, yeah, so let's get this episode started. Sorry about the voice, guys. I can't help it. Lots of places all over the United States claim to be the most haunted place in America, but I believe that Waverly Hills Sanatorium is definitely in the top five. I have never been to Waverly Hills, and honestly, I don't know if I want to. For those of you who don't know, I am sensitive, and I am a bit of an empath. I try to avoid super haunted places because things seem to seek me out, so I actively try to avoid places that could be haunted or even possibly a portal. And there are some creepy stories to come out of this place. I can't wait to tell you all about them, but more on that later. Waverly Hills Sanatorium is located in Louisville, Kentucky, and it has a tragic past within its walls. Let's all go back in time to understand how tuberculosis caused this place to become one of the most haunted places in America. To fully understand what Waverly Hills Sanatorium was, I feel like we must first understand tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, also known as TB, is a disease that at one time was one of the biggest killers in the world. This disease has evidence that dates back to 2400 BC. We know this because mummies have been found that have shown evidence of TB in their spines. TB was called prithtis in ancient Greek, tabes by the Romans, and was called scothopeth in ancient Hebrew. And I probably didn't say that right, but that's what Google said. This disease is awful and so painful to get. It is a silent killer at first. Most people with TB don't have any symptoms for a long while, so they don't even know they have it inside them. Tuberculosis attacks the lungs, and once the symptoms begin to occur, it is really bad. It includes pain in your chest, pain when you breathe, coughing up blood, chills, fatigue, fever, loss of appetite, night sweats, or just in general sweating. Then it goes in for the kill. It starts to attack your muscles, you begin to lose weight, your shortness of breath, and then your breath is, gets really hard to catch, and then your lymph nodes swell, and then eventually you die. The disease is airborne, so it is highly contagious and spreads quickly. Still to this day, it is one of the top 10 causes of death worldwide. In 2018, 10 million people fell ill with tuberculosis, and 1.5 million died from it. Today, we can treat tuberculosis with heavy antibiotics, and we have developed a vaccine to greatly decrease the spread of TB altogether. But for thousands of years, there was no cure, and it was a scary time when TB came to your town, especially in the 20th century, because tuberculosis was the leading cause of death in the United States at this time. So much death makes people become desperate for a cure, or just to believe that there might be a way to relieve the pain. And with everyone in needing a place to go for treatment, especially in Kentucky, it was the perfect place to build a hospital. Because tuberculosis was so contagious, the thought was to keep people who have it away from the general public. 
Give the patient a nice place away from the non-infected so that they could rest and hopefully get better. The only problem was no doctor knew how to treat tuberculosis for a long time. So many people that went to Waverly Hills were not only sent away to the hospital for hope, but they were also guinea pigs. The land that now has the remains of Waverly Hills Sanatorium was once owned by Major Thomas H. Hayes. In 1883, the Hayes family lived in a home on the land, and because the home was far away from any schools, he wanted a place for his daughters to get an education. So Hayes decided to open a local school for his daughters. He built a one-room schoolhouse on what was now called Pages Lane, and he hired a teacher named Lizzie Lee Harris. Because Miss Harris loved Walter Scott's Waverly novels, she decided to name the school Waverly School. The major loved the name so much that he ended up naming his whole property Waverly Hills. In the beginning of the 1900s, a bad outbreak of TB began in Jefferson County. It spread so quickly that it was reaching a pandemic level. In Louisville, because of the wetlands along the Ohio River, it was the perfect breeding ground for tuberculosis. Small hospitals in the area began to be overrun with tuberculosis patients, and something needed to be done and quickly to try to contain the disease. A two-story wooden sanatorium was opened for the treatment of early cases of TB. It had one administrative building and two open-air pavilions. Each one could house only 20 patients. However, that would not be enough. The hospitals were soon overrun with tuberculosis patients. And due to the fact that doctors had little knowledge of how to treat this disease, they needed a much bigger place for only tuberculosis suffering patients. So that way doctors could experiment and figure out what to do. By 1911, the city of Louisville were making plans to build a new Louisville City Hospital, and they decided not to let any tuberculosis patients into the new city hospital. Instead, they decided to give the Board of Tuberculosis Hospital $25,000 to make their own hospital to care for advanced cases of pulmonary TB. Up next, they needed to find a place far away from the general public so that the spread of the outbreak would hopefully slow if they were not around people who were considered healthy. They found the perfect place out of the city, up on a hill with fresh air. Waverly Hills was for sale, and the Tuberculosis Hospital Board purchased the land from Major Hayes, and they kept the name and began building a new hospital right away. On August 31st, 1912, all tuberculosis patients from the city hospital were relocated to temporary tents on the grounds of Waverly Hills, where they were waiting for the completion of the new tuberculosis hospital. In December 1912, the Hospital for Advanced Tuberculosis Cases opened. In 1914, the Children's Pavilion was added. It could house 50 beds, and the Children's Pavilion was not only housed the sick children, but it also held children who had sick parents because they could not be cared for at home. And this just shows that they really did not know what to do with people who had tuberculosis. I don't understand how they could have even known it was contagious, and yet have kids that didn't have TB sleep and eat and play with other kids that did have TB. It just blows my mind. How could they have been like that? I don't know, naive, I guess. I guess that it was that they didn't understand that it was airborne disease, but they still knew it was contagious. And the whole point of having this hospital up here on this hill was to keep healthy people away from the sick. So I don't understand how come they did that. But anyway, I don't I just don't understand that at all. 
The goal for this hospital was to add a new building each year to add more beds due to the ever-growing outbreak. In the end, these small wooden structures were not cutting it anymore. They needed more space, plus the wooden structures kept needing repairs done, and that was very expensive. By this point, they were way overcrowded as well. It was only meant to hold 40 patients, but in the end, they had 140 people. Because of this, they kept having to turn people away for lack of space. With the outbreak of TB ever growing and the constant repairs needing on the wooden buildings, the TB board decided to build a massive concrete and brick five-story building that could hold more than 400 plus patients. Construction began in March 1924 and the new building opened on October 17, 1926. This building is massive and it is the one that is so famous today. I posted some photos of it on my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages, so if you have time, you should definitely go check them out if you don't know how big this building is. And also, if you have time, if you're not driving, just Google it really quick and it'll come up. I'm sure you've heard or at least seen a picture of Waverly Hills before. It was designed in the Gothic Trudeau style, and it had gargoyles at the top, which I think is really neat. It also had a room for each patient, and it had this weird, like, double door entry. It's really hard to explain, but picture this. Picture you're looking down at kind of like a, a, a wing, a hospital wing. In the middle is a hallway, and then you've got a patient door. And then when you walk in the patient's room, there's another door that leads out onto this giant solarium. If you don't know what a solarium is, it's like a giant porch that went around the entire wing of the hospital. Because they didn't know how to treat tuberculosis, the doctors thought that fresh air, rest, and a positive attitude would help cure it. So what they would do is if you were sick and you were in your bed, Every single day, rain, snow, or shine, they would wheel your bed out the double doors onto the solarium. And there are photos of people laying out in the, in the snow, of all things. They have heated blankets on and they're just piled up with snow on them. And they thought that that was still going to help them cure their tuberculosis. When this massive hospital opened... It was said to be state-of-the-art. It had the top doctors and medical equipment in the country along with the best-equipped staff. Once people started to arrive at this hospital, they basically had to leave the world they knew behind. Waverly Hills was a town of itself. It was its own self-sustaining community. It had its own zip code, its own post office, a garden for them to grow their own food. It had its own water treatment facility, and they even raised their own meat for slaughter. The patients had activities and groups for them to be a part of, and they were also allowed visitor days and they could be visited by family members. Again, not smart, because after the family members visited a giant hospital full of tuberculosis patients, they were sent back out into the community. The doctors and the nurses also were not allowed to leave once they started working there, although they were allowed visitation days, same as everyone else. If you look up pictures of Waverly Hills, the main thing you're going to find is pictures of people out on the solariums, in their beds with snow on them because it was thought that all that fresh, crisp air would help the tuberculosis spread. And for some it did, but the majority of people came to that hospital for hope and ended up leaving through the tunnel. Due to so much death caused by tuberculosis, everyone was scrambling for a cure, and this pushed doctors to hurry and try new procedures. Nowadays, these procedures would be considered barbaric in nature. 
Some treatments included deflating of lungs while waiting for it to heal, and then they would reinflate it once they thought it was healed. Other treatments happened in what was called the sunroom. This room had people's lungs being directly exposed to ultraviolet light, and they believed that that would stop the bacteria from spreading. Then sometimes they would put a balloon inside your lung, and they would fill it with air to expand them so they could take in more oxygen, but this almost never worked. And there was another horrible thing where they would cut away ribs and muscle tissue, so that way you could try to get more air in your system, but that one, a lot of people just died from that surgery alone. The morgue began to become overrun with bodies. Approximately 6,000 people died at Waverly Hills, and with so many of those people dying every day, it was not a good look if you were the one sick in your room and you had to see hearse after hearse pulling up to the front of the building day and night. Needless to say, it was not good for the overall morale. Because of this, a body chute was added to the side of the building. This body chute was a pulley system that you could put a body in and it would bring it straight down to the morgue. And after that body would be exhumed down there, it would be wheeled out what is now called the death tunnel so that a hearse could take the body away and it would be out of view of the hospital. There is some debate as to if the tunnel was built solely for that purpose. It was also an easy way to get supplies up the hill from the main gate when it was snowing, and also nurses and staff would be able to get from the gate up to the top as well, easier and quickly. So whether made for mass amounts of dead bodies or not, it was used for that in the end, and it saw the most death pass through its walls. The hospital remained open for tuberculosis patients until 1961. 1944 saw the discovery of an antibiotic that finally and successfully treated and cured TB. This in turn made the hospital obsolete. The city closed down the tuberculosis hospital in 1961 and renovated it to become a geriatric facility that reopened in 1962, known as Woodhaven Medical Services. This new facility was a place to now send aging patients who were suffering from various stages of dementia and Alzheimer's and people who were severely mentally handicapped. This facility stayed open until 1982 and it was closed by the state due to reports of patient neglect and massive overcrowding. In 1983, a developer named J. Clifford Todd bought the hospital for $3,500,000 and he wanted to turn the building into a minimum security prison for the state. However, they had to drop the plan due to neighbors in the surrounding area protesting the plan. Needless to say, that wasn't a very popular idea. So then Todd had to propose something else to try to make money off of it. So he proposed converting the old hospital into apartments, but that eventually fell flat when the city ended up not buying extra land from him that he needed to sell the land so that he could have money to start the project. And I mean, let's be honest, who would ever want to live in a place like that that had so much death in its walls? I don't think that was ever going to work out very well. The next big idea for the property was kind of weird in my opinion. In 1996, a man named Robert Alkabreski bought Waverly Hills and the surrounding area with the idea to build a giant statue of Jesus. Yes, I'm not kidding. See, Alkabreski started a Christ the Redeemer Foundation Incorporated, and he made plans to construct the tallest statue of Jesus 
on the roof of Waverly Hills building, and it would look like the one in Rio, but it would be taller than the one in Rio. Then he wanted to renovate the building to have a chapel, a theater, and a gift shop. The estimated cost of this project was $8 million or more, but the plan fell through because the donations for his project fell way short than his expectations. He was only able to get around $3,000 raised for the whole project. Big surprise there. Anyways, regardless of what happened, the project was canceled in December of 1996. After that, Waverly Hills seriously fell apart. It became a place for teens and homeless people to hang out in. Almost all the windows were broken out and spray paint and vandalism happened on a normal basis. Ghost stories and urban legends began to form about the old hospital and it was falling apart until Waverly Hills was sold to Tina and Charlie Mattingly in 2001. Tina and Charlie now are trying to fix up the property and save its historic past. They do a haunted attraction every Halloween along with a Christmas light show during the holidays. During its normal times of year, they open the building for historical and ghost tours. They even do overnight ghost investigations as well. They're in the progress of fixing every glass window in the whole building, and they have tight security on the grounds. If you don't have an appointment for a tour, you are not allowed in. This is a great way to keep vandals away from all their hard work. And I love what they're doing to the place. I've heard so many great things. I love it when people take on these historical locations and they really try to fix them up and save the history behind them. Also, Waverly Hills has been on several TV shows, including Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, BBC's Most Haunted, Animal Planet's Call of the Wild Man, Ghost Asylum, Paranormal Lockdown, and even mentioned in Supernatural. Though they did not film on location, they still made it look like they went into Waverly Hills, and I think that's pretty cool. Many podcasts have covered this place like History Goes Bump and That's Why We Drink. Astonishing Legends recently did a two-parter on it because one of the hosts went in and did a 24-hour lockdown ghost hunt of this place and he got some creepy evidence and he had some really weird experiences. Now that we have taken a deep dive into this location's history, it is important that we discuss this part before we move on to the ghosts. Many people in this community spent their last moments at this location, either with tuberculosis at Waverly Hills or they ended up at Woodhaven as elders. One thing we know for certain is that this place was the end of the line for over 6,000 people over the course of well over 50 years. But the end of the line for some people might not have meant that they moved on from our world just yet. Due to tuberculosis killing mostly young people, some of these ghosts might have unfinished business. Others might not even know they're dead, and some might be coming and going because this place just might be a portal of sorts. people have had experiences at Waverly Hills and there are so many stories that I'm going to have a hard time fitting them all into one episode but I'm going to go over the highlights of this place for you guys the best I can. Up first we have stories of ghost nurses. Nurses that worked in this hospital risked catching tuberculosis but continued to work and try to help heal the sick anyways. They were truly brave. 
One popular ghost story is of a woman seen in a nurse's uniform in room 502. It is said that she hung herself in the room because she was pregnant and not married. Others say that a doctor got her pregnant and did not want her telling, so the doctor killed her and made it look like she had hung herself. No one knows for sure why she hung herself, but the story might be made up altogether because there is no documented proof of this actually happening. It could have happened and been covered up, but it also could just be one of those urban legends. Regardless, people claim to see a nurse in and around room 502. Another nurse was said to have committed suicide by jumping from the top of the building after working in room 502. Some say she was pushed, but again, the story has no evidence to back it up. But paranormal teams have caught some really spooky things coming out of room 502. Disembodied voices, cold spots, crying sounds, and lots of EVPs. Some have even caught some really spooky EVPs that sound like they might be demons rather than ghosts of people who have lived in the hospital. Some paranormal researchers and mediums have claimed that Waverly Hills is more than just a haunted hospital. Because of all the sadness and death that has happened within its walls, some believe that it is the perfect place to open a portal or at the very least attract negative and dark energies. Leading into the negative and dark energies, we have something that is called the creeper. This is a thing that scares me so much, even to talk about it, I am sure this is going to give me nightmares tonight, just to let you know. The creeper is a dark shadow, human-shaped entity that is rarely seen at Waverly Hills. It hangs out on the fourth floor, but when it is seen, it leaves a big impression on the person who saw it, and they feel like true terror and a sense of dread. When the creeper is seen, it isn't just walking around, it is seen crawling along the floor, and it even crawls up the walls and the ceiling. Ugh, just creeps me out. Some believe that the creeper may be demonic in nature. Most human entities do only what they did in life. A demonic entity does what is considered to be outside of the norm. And some believe that the creeper is feeding off of the energy of pain and fear that is still within the walls of Waverly Hills. Doppelgangers have been spotted at this location, mostly spotted also up on the fourth floor. Makes me wonder what is going on with the fourth floor. Time slips occur, people seeing things that are not shared by the rest of the group even though everyone is looking at the same spot. I will give you guys an example really quick of what I mean. First, my voice is really starting to die off. And second, a doppelganger is someone who looks like someone you know, but there is something a bit off about them. They might even approach you and try to pass themselves off as the person you know. But then you start to notice that something is just not right about this encounter. Some people believe that this is demonic in nature as well. What exactly do they want? Well, we don't know. Then we have time slips going on in this location. Those are pretty straightforward. They're when you think you're only in a building for a couple minutes and you come out and you realize it's been hours and maybe someone's been looking for you for a long time and they can't find you either and you swear that you've only been in the building for like 10 minutes and then the next time you look at the clock you realize hours have passed. Sometimes only minutes, but sometimes hours have passed by, and to you, it's only a couple of minutes. That's really crazy stuff. A next example of something really creepy happening comes to you from a podcast I listened to recently from Astonishing Legends. Now, I said earlier that they did a two-parter on Waverly Hills, and that wasn't quite accurate. 
What they did was they had a guest star on their one episode, and that guest was named James Wills. And he's a ghost hunter, and he was on the show for Astonishing Legends called James Wills and the Ghost of Ohio. And that was the episode title. On that episode, James told of an experience he had at Waverly Hills at the end of the episode, and that led into the next episode of Astonishing Legends did, and that was a lockdown where one of the hosts was with James Wills at Waverly Hills, and then they went over all their creepy stuff they found. Anyways, the main story that James said about Waverly was when he went to Waverly for the first time in 2011 he was taking a tour of the building with a tour guide before he did a night investigation and for some crazy reason he decided he wanted to see the creeper after hearing about it and the tour guide told him the best way to try to see the creeper so when they did the lockdown investigation he and his team there was in a group of four and they went up to the fourth floor alone with just their group So what they did was James went to the one end of the hallway and he turned his, he had a headlamp on and he turned his headlamp off and he sat there. And then the other three were at the other end of the hallway and they turned their flashlights off. And they were said that they had to sit there in the dark and sometimes you'd see the creeper crawling around you. But he doesn't appear often so it's very rare that you see him at all. About 20 minutes went by and nothing happened. And James is just sitting there in the dark and then at some time, he hears on the other end of the hallway, the group say, where did he go? And then there's silence. And then they call out, Jim? And he says, yeah, I'm here. And the group says, oh my God, that wasn't him. And so he got up to see what was going on. And the two people out of the three said that they saw James stand up and turn his headlamp on and walk into another room. And they asked him where he went, and when he replied, he was sitting right in front of them, and he hadn't turned on his lamp, and he hadn't moved. Now, this, of course, freaked everybody out, but the other person in the group said that he didn't see it, but he did quit right after this event, so the thought is maybe he did see it, and it freaked him out so much, he was like, I'm done with this paranormal stuff, who knows? But... Uh, James calls it the creeper story, but honestly, I don't think of that as the creeper story. I think that was a doppelganger, which is very creepy because it was like he came out of his own body and walked away, which really freaks me out. Um, the creeper, in my opinion, would have to be the creeper, like to call it a creeper story, but that's just my opinion. Still a really cool story and you've got to go check them out. That's Astonishing Legends. You can find them on everything. Um, They're a podcast, and then you've got to listen to their lockdown episode because they found some very scary stuff on their EVPs recorders as well and had some very creepy experiences. So if you listen to that episode, that gives you just some of the crazy experiences that happened within Waverly. Shadow people are seen all over the old hospital. They can be seen darting in and out of patient rooms, running up and down the big solariums, Moans, groans, and gasps can be heard along with crying, screaming, and laughing. Children ghosts have been seen playing in empty rooms, peeking around doorways, doors slam on their own. Something that would give me a heart attack. Leftover wheelchairs and patient beds have been said to move on their own. Now that I'd be out of there so fast if something like that happened. You can hear squeaky wheels as if invisible gurneys are being pushed down the halls. People claim to hear footsteps on the solarium, and then when you go out to investigate, you hear footsteps behind you in the hall, which is kind of a creepy, I'm playing with you type of vibe, which I don't like either. 
While the building was empty, an old homeless man and his dog were said to have been killed by falling down an elevator shaft, and some claim he was pushed, of course. But who knows, there are negative spirits at this location, apparently. So because of this, some people claim to hear a dog whining or barking and also see an older gentleman walking the grounds. A little boy is said to be seen playing with a red ball, and he loves to play with people who bring balls for him. People have claimed to roll the ball across the floor only to have someone roll it back to them. Also, a little girl with no eyes has been seen running around the halls, and that is the stuff of nightmares. Downstairs in the basement, the smell of baking bread can be smelled inside the old kitchen, and a doctor, or possibly a baker in a white coat, can be seen walking down the halls in the basement area. In the morgue, apparitions of doctors in white lab coats have been seen as if they are going about their normal duties of preparing a body to be transported. Down in the death tunnel, the sound of disembodied carts being wheeled up and down the tunnel and footsteps along with whispers can be heard. Shadows have been seen at the end of the tunnel and footsteps can be heard as if someone is walking behind you or down the tunnel towards you. Lots of people ghost hunt here and they say that this place is definitely haunted. I think that ghost tours and fun attractions at this location is keeping the history of this old place alive. I am looking forward to seeing what more they can do to the old building in the future. I hope that they don't ever stop preserving the history and the ghosts within its walls. I hope that you all had a nice time with me today listening to this episode. Thank you all for being so patient with me, and I hope my voice was not too bad for you guys. Again, I wanted to say thank you to all our veterans who have served our military since it will be about Veterans Day when this uh, podcast posts. Please don't forget to find me online, and I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. If you have a paranormal story that you would like to share with me and I could even put on here, let me know and email me at historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. All right, that's it for me. It's time for me to go take some NyQuil and go to bed. Hopefully this bad cold will be gone by tomorrow morning. Well, I hope you guys all have a great weekend and a great couple of weeks. I'll see you guys two Sundays from now. I hope everything goes back to normal. Let's pray that there are no more fires and no more safety shutoffs. All right, I'll talk to you guys all soon. Can't wait to get back to the history and mystery with you. Bye, guys.